Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, I'm Jeremy Casebeer, and this is our Impact, the show working to better understand what our impact is, what we can do about it, and how we can scale positive outcomes and solutions. Today's episode is part of a mini series brought to you by one of my favorite brands, Fat Tire Amber Ale. Fat Tire is America's first carbon neutral beer and the perfect beer for kicking back after a long day outdoors. Not sure what it means for a beer to be carbon neutral? That's all right. I didn't either. And that's what we get into in today's episode with my guest, Katie Wallace. Katie is the Director of Social and Environmental Impact at Fat Tire and New Belgium Brewing. Katie and her team's work focuses on climate action, diversity, equity, and inclusion, land and water protection, community well-being, and B Corp governance. She holds a degree in finance and economics, as well as a master's in applied positive psychology. We had a wide-ranging conversation exploring how Fat Tire became America's first carbon neutral beer, their new website, drinksustainably.com, and how they brewed the future of beer with Torched Earth. Torched Earth shows what beer could taste like in a climate-ravaged future, with smoke-tainted water and drought-resistant grains. The goal of Torched Earth and drinksustainably.com is to raise awareness of how climate change affects everything, even the beer we drink and to encourage people to reach out to their favorite brands and urge them to adopt a climate action plan and commit to being carbon neutral by 2030. Kitty and I also get into B Corp certification, the ways we can all take action individually and collectively, and the simple joys of connecting with each other over a beer. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Katie Wallace, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. It's great to be here, Jeremy. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So jumping right in. One of the coolest headlines I think I've heard in quite some time, Fat Tire is America's first carbon neutral beer. What does that mean and what went into the process of making Fat Tire America's first carbon neutral beer? Yeah, great question. Well, I think there are a few key steps along the way. One of them is just measuring our greenhouse gas emissions in the first place and understanding where our impact is happening. Um, We did the first um, greenhouse gas lifecycle analysis um, footprint for um, beer back in 2008. Wow. So, um, you know, got really nerdy, um, tried to understand carbon accounting and followed the, all of the um, global protocols around that. And then um, and then we know what we're working with, which was surprising for me. Like, what would you think? Of, like, what, OK, of all the life cycle of a beer, what would you think would be like the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions? I mean, the transportation seems like it because beer is yeah. obviously heavy. And then obviously there's a lot of water in there. Is that it? I thought it was going to be transportation too. Like that was my guess, just shipping it around the country. But um, transportation is still quite up there, but it's like 11% of our total footprint throughout the life cycle. But um, the number one is containers. So cans and bottles. And then barley farming is the second largest. Really? And then you've got refrigeration, like at the grocery stores. Sure. That makes sense. And transportation and trucking. So anyway, it was, you know, it was good to know like where you're, what you're starting with, right? It's not always intuitive. And, and so we did that first and then, and then we do, you know, for the last 30 years, since we've been in business, we've been doing all kinds of creative things to reduce our energy usage on site um, or reduce the weight of the bottle to decrease the emissions in the bottles, right? Um, Doing everything we can to make direct emissions reductions um, for the long term. Um, and so a lot of creative stuff in addition to solar and biogas, electricity and others. 
Um, we also have energy saving techniques within our heat capture in the brewing process and really think things that are not super like sexy for headlines, but they're like really meaningful as far as energy savings. Yeah. So everything money we can, and reducing emissions all at the same time. Yeah. A lot of these have a really good payback, you know, um, and we're in general, we don't need a quarterly payback on things. We're willing yeah. to wait a few years because we know we're going to be in business in the yeah. long term. And so we're going to get those savings really high level of certainty on these savings. So yeah, so we do everything we can to reduce our our emissions directly, but then we, um, you know, where we can't yet, then we buy carbon offsets. And so that's basically paying for someone else to do a project that sucks the carbon back into the soil or offsets carbon and, gen you know, reduces the need for carbon emissions through renewable electricity or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, and we try to re redirect those funds from our offsets. Like we make sure that we're spending that money, not just on projects that are like planting trees in a place where nobody will water them and they may or may not grow. Right. But we really try to make sure there's a high level of like um, accountability within each offset. And also that it, where possible that it's helping to reduce our emissions across the life cycle um, in a direct fashion. So for example, like I said, barley is our second largest source of emissions, barley, far the farming of it. And um, and we are buying offsets from Indigo Ag, which is helping barley farmers um, switch over to regenerative agriculture. So they get a revenue source to wow. change their farming practices. And then ultimately, in the, at the end of the day, that's a direct emissions reduction for fat tires life cycle. And why is it better? That's one thing I'm starting to look into a little bit more. Why is it better to reduce emissions directly or make a more efficient process upfront rather than trying to clean up your emissions afterwards? Yeah, off offsets can just be really tricky. Um, and so making sure that the carbon stays in the soil for a long time, yeah. you're, you're counting on a lot of people to make a lot of good decisions for the long term. There's no, you know, at this point in time with the technology, we wouldn't be able to keep up with um, offsets at the rate that the emissions are coming out of um, the smokestacks and the tailpipes. And so um, there's just, it just becomes a very expensive, it's very, very expensive to take that approach to be making the mistake and then correcting for it and trying to catch, you know, that it's definitely the most expensive choice um, and also probably least successful, but when you can reduce your emissions in the first place and you're not having to chase that tail yeah. constantly, um, then it's, you save a lot more money by doing it right in the first place. Um, and typically, for example, like regenerative farming, any farmers that we've worked with that have switched over to regenerative, they say that aside from the offsets revenue, they're actually saving money farming that way. And they're getting more resilience um, out of their crops during tough uh, weather. Weather. So, um, so it, it's better kind of soil, better crops, and saving money. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a matter of getting people to switch over, which takes some, you know, brain space and maybe a little investment to change equipment or farming methods. And we just got to get it over the hump. But a lot of these solutions in, in the long run are also more cost effective if we reduce the emissions at the start versus yeah. um, trying to make up for it later. Very cool. And you mentioned some surprising results from the life cycle analysis you guys did about the packaging. So what is the most sustainable way to drink beer? Is it cans, yeah. bottles, another yeah. kegs? <laughs> There's so many options and it is a complex system when you look at everything that goes into, you know, the bottle, the packaging, the growing, the water, the operations in-house at your breweries. So mm -hmm. what is the most sustainable way to actually drink beer? Ultimately, cans and bottles are pretty similar. 
and we can increase recycled content, which really, really matters. Both aluminum and bottles are endlessly recyclable. Like we could stop taking it out, all the materials out of the ground right now and just take what we have and circulate that for a very long time if we weren't throwing it in the trash. And that can decrease our emissions per container by like up to 25%, which is decent. But then we see like the 80% plus um, reduction in emissions is if you go to, um, you know, a, a draft beer with a reusable glass, not a disposable one, and or um, a refillable bottle like they're doing in Oregon right now, or they like they do across most of the world, just not in the United States. Um, that's estimated to be about an 84% reduction in carbon emissions. Oh. So, um, so a lot of refillable systems work really well. Like in Oregon, you just put it in the recycling. They have a sorter that they sort out the refillable bottles with, and then they wash them and resell them to breweries. Um, so they're piloting that right now with a lot of um, success. And, um, and hopefully, you know, we see something in that vein in the long term in the United States return to that, you know, refillable infrastructure. Um, but like cans also have their place, you know, they're, they're lightweight, um, pretty, pretty carbon intensive at the beginning of their life cycle, which we don't see. Glass is not so intensive at the beginning of its life cycle mm -hmm. in the mining and processing. Um, but at the end of its life cycle, like the shipping and the collection and recycling, um, cans do save some carbon. And um, there's definitely, you know, the right place for cans and the right place for bottles and refillables. Um, every, all those materials have great opportunity to be part of a circular economy that's also carbon friendly. Yeah, it's cool to see the, like you said, the refillable system or the milkman model starting to come back and yeah. more durable packaging that you don't have to throw away every single time you use. You right. can bring your growler to the brewery and refill there or save on some of that packaging up front. So your role as the director of social and environmental impact sounds pretty damn cool, but I'm sure that varies quite a bit from company to company. What does that look like kind of day to day working with Fat Tire and the rest of the new Belgian brewing company? Yeah, I think it is a bit different from company to company, but um, it's all, also getting increasingly similar as the field of you know social and environmental impact at the corporate level evolves and matures. But um, for us at New Belgium, we use the B Corp certification as our kind of guiding uh, framework. And so B Corp certification um, verifies that we are making beneficial impact to our coworkers, to our communities, and to the environment. And they also measure what level it's integrated into our bylaws and general governance practices um, and boards of board of directors, big, big level decision making. And so, so that's where my team starts. There are seven of us at New Belgium that are ultimately, you know, ringing the bell for the, for these initiatives all day long. But we work with dozens and dozens of people across New Belgium that are helping to bring that to life, whether it's an engineer or someone in uh, procurement or in marketing, even to figure out how we leverage the brand for positive impact. And so we have our big focus for this year um, and in the foreseeable future is driving climate action, using our brand platform to inspire change and also making those big changes and accelerating our progress towards carbon neutral as we see the climate warm faster than we expected. And then we're also focused on diversity, equity and inclusion and climate justice and making sure that as we re rebuild our economy in a way that works for the climate, that we're doing it in a way that also works for traditionally marginalized communities. As a company that was employee owned for 30 years and 
distributed nearly $200 million to our co-owners. Um, we're very passionate about wealth distribution and wealth equity, and that's especially needed in our communities of color um, in the United States right now, making sure that we build an, a more equitable future for all. Um, and then finally, we do um, all of the philanthropy is on our team, so we leverage those dollars for these causes as well, and we do a lot of policy advocacy um, because we just don't think that the voluntary efforts are going to get us where we need to go fast enough and be as inclusive as they really need to be to build a resilient um, economy and society going forward. There's a lot of examples of like in the past where the United States has like come together with a federal incentive to drive shared prosperity in a challenging time, and um, you know, post World War II, post the um, Great Depression. Uh, the United States brought in things like agricultural subsidies and oil and gas subsidies to drive our, our shared prosperity and protect us. And um, it's just time to re, you know, evaluate what behaviors we're driving with those federal incentives and um, coordinate together as a nation to do our part in uh, mitigating climate change. Wow, that's a lot of impactful initiatives. And it's cool to see that's one thing that I kind of first got started on learning about B Corps a number of years ago is how, as a consumer, how do you know that a business is actually doing what they say they do? It's not just a PR marketing stunt, but with B Corp certification, with 1% for the planet and the carbon neutral certification with SES and others, mm -hmm. there's a pretty stringent uh, verification and steps you have to take. And it's cool too. One thing I was really intrigued by was the B Corp impact assessment, which is a free assessment for anyone that any business that wants to jump in and kind of see where they, where they can start, see what they're missing. And even for some brands that have already pretty far along in their work, it helps identify gaps they may have overlooked, which is really cool. The, the assessment is extremely educational. I would recommend it for anybody. And it's free. Like you said, it's open source. It just costs money to certify. It's pretty insightful to go through the questions and realize, wow, we've been doing you know, business as a force for good for our entire history. And then to see a question that challenges our current practices and yeah. every three years, they bring out a new assessment. So they're kind of continually updating, like what is a living wage now? And, um, and then are you meeting that? So it, it continues to, you know, push us um, and expand our, our consideration of these topics. So I really like it for that. It's also very comprehensive and social and environmental space and really practical from the business protections. As a B Corp, you also have to um, change your bylaws to become a public benefit corp. And that actually protects your board of directors and your leadership team to make decisions on behalf of people and planet as well as profits. So if you haven't, anyway, I, those nerdy details, I won't get too deep, <laughs> but like, um, but yeah, I think B Corp certification is, is wonderful framework and just a great benchmark when it comes to climate you know, that that carbon neutral certification is really important. There's also the science-based targets initiative, which is like a very legit commitment that a lot of companies are making. If they're on that list, you know, they're doing some very serious work to drive down their direct emissions. And yeah, really impressive list of companies on the SBTI list as well. So what is the idea behind a $100 six pack? How did that come about? Yeah, um, as we were going through carbon neutral certification for Fat Tire, we wanted to introduce it in a way that was meaning, you know, felt meaningful and digestible to our beer drinkers and the general public. Um, carbon neutral, even in my mind, you know, it's not something you can like see. You can't see yeah. it changing necessarily. You can see like the natural disasters we deal with, but you know, what's happening in the sky and the air is quite invisible to us. And so 
I think as a part of our effort to help drive a sense of urgency around, a sense of understanding around why we were doing carbon neutral and why more companies should do should take this approach. We wanted to kind of illustrate what the world could be like if we don't do that. And so this was a great partnership with our marketing team, who was really phenomenal to work with and use, helping to use our our customer facing brand to educate on climate. Um, it was you know a collaborative project with that team just to share. The consequences that we're looking at. And so $100 a six pack comes from the idea that we could be facing major disasters in our supply chain that would make beer more expensive. And we're already actually having some of those things pop up, but there's they're new and you know there's a little bit of resiliency in the system, but pretty soon we're going to get to the point where that's not the case um, if we keep having disasters like this. So for example, in Colorado, um, the canyon that brings the water to our brewery here had the, the largest wildfire in Colorado's history last summer, and it burned well into the winter, you know, the snowpack time. Wow. And so strange, strange um, events happening more and more. You have, for example, the big cold snap that went even through Texas, as low as Texas, as the jet stream slipped because of the warming poles. And that actually disrupted delivery of um, CO2 that we use in our process. And so, you know, nationally, we're experiencing issues with CO2 deliveries now. And then you had things like hurricanes wiping out fruit crops, you know, so, um, in which we use like orange peel in some of our beers. And, and so more and more, we're seeing smoke taint on the hops from the wildfires in the Northwest. And, like, and so increasingly cramped um, supply chains. And the more frequent that that becomes, um, and, and as we go down that, that trail, then that becomes more costly for us to make beer and um, and sell it. And so, so and sometimes maybe not even possible for us to get certain ingredients yeah. if you look at some of those extreme situations. And that ties in with the torturous beer that's coming out. I'm going to be trying it here in the next couple of days. And the idea behind that is like you just said, the water quality is going to, could be limited. The hops are going to be limited. The ingredients are going to be limited. So what's that all about? What is the flavor profile of torched earth? Doesn't sound too tasty. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's not, not delicious. Um, but kind of riffing off of the $100 a six pack that explored what beer would cost in the future. This is um, riffing off of what beer might taste like. So the idea, you know, our, our narrative, our storyline around it is like our brewer, Cody, like his grandson is brewing, granddaughter is brewing a beer, um, you know, 40, 50 years down the road and experiencing some of these like extreme situations that we ex that are predicted if we don't take action. And there, um, he sends some beer back from the future, right? And like, and just says like, hey, can you, can you guys do something now? Because this is what beer tastes like and it's not great. And so yeah. of course, of course, beer is um, a luxury good and it's, um, you know, maybe the least of our worries when it comes to some of the real life um, traumatic impacts that could happen. But this is where this is our realm. And we like beer a lot. We want to yeah. live in a future with good beer. And so, um, so yeah, so the beer kind of the recipe for the beer really imagines some of the things that, look, that um, are happening now and in, in more extreme examples. So for example, like barley crops, losing those and, and um, not having fresh barley malt to brew with year to year, we might have to use extracts, which is like, you know, making it into Sounds a syrup that stores. Yeah. It's kind of like corn syrup beer. Yeah. Right. And then, um, and then without hops, because there's such a delicate um, uh, crop that we could easily see years without hops, we had to choose different things to um, bitter the beer with. And so dandelion root is going to be growing really well in future <laughs> climate scenarios as a really robust plant. So taking some of that bittering agent and um, we also imagined 
you know, things like the forest fire we've had in the river and we don't have the opportunity to source water elsewhere. So we're forced to use the water that tastes like smoke and, oh. um, you know, is real burnt tasting. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm really selling it here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One idea that I came across a couple of years back was Catherine Hayhoe, a uh, climate scientist. She works with Drawdown and mm-hmm. she was talking about, you know, she's a, I believe an evangelical Christian living in Texas. And her big thing is everyone has a connection to climate change. Everyone has a collection connection to our natural environment. It's just a matter of connecting the dots. And I love the way you guys are approaching it with your authentic, genuine marketing that look, we love beer. And if we don't act, we may not be able to drink it anymore. It may cost a hundred dollars a six pack. So I think that's something that everyone can get behind. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of like dystopian fantasy novel or whatever, but it's like, you know, maybe not too far of a reach actually from what was predicted to happen. Um, But we also have, I think a great deal of optimism around what's possible, the technologies there, financing mechanisms are there to really shift things in a fast way. It's just about getting kind of the political will and, and each person on board to, to be ready to kind of push for something that matters to all of us in our future. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. How are you and your team working to scale the work you're doing with Fat Tire and in the new Belgian brewery out into the larger community? That's one thing I'm really interested in is how can our how can we take individual action in our own lives or at work and then build that out? How can we focus on solutions to try and scale those out into the community and beyond? Yeah, like I think, like I said earlier, like I'm I'm an eternal optimist about yeah. what, what's possible. And we just need to act really fast on climate action um, in order to avoid the irreversible kind of most um, dramatic impacts that climate change could bring. And so the IPCC scientists, um, intergovernmental panel of climate change scientists, say that um, in the next, you know, 10 years, we need to make dramatic reductions um, in order to curb the um, what's forecasted. We right now think about like, all right, how can we put the pedal to the metal on like all of these solutions that we know exist, like renewable energy, electric vehicles, circular pack, you know, economy packaging and and all the all these things we know how to do is just a matter of getting them done and changing behaviors and funding um, directions. So one thing that we're doing at New Belgium, um, in addition to our policy advocacy, which is asking for that federal push um, and incentive program, um, we're also um, we built out a carbon neutral toolkit and want to share that with other brewers. You know, not every brewer has the size of a team that we have and has spent as many years kind of figuring out the technical you know navigation through. Yeah through climate action. And so um, we'll be sharing that out with other brewers, our playbook on that. Um, right now, we see action on climate as a pre-competitive thing. Like we, if one of us wins on that um, and, uh, and others don't, then ultimately we all lose. And so um, we're all about like the, you know, working together in a collaborative way across the industry with competitors, um, with other industries to make change faster. And then I think there's something, you know, like, like we've talked about, like, Talk uh, bringing this into our branding and bringing it into our marketing and communicating with beer drinkers around like what cli- what things could look like for beer if we don't take action on climate. And I think you know the general public has made enormous shifts over the last ten years on um, pushing brands to do more for climate. You know, consumer activism really matters. Both our buying decisions and as you know, they really add up um, at the end of the day. And, and we're seeing real sustaining trends over the last decade. Um, that are causing 
companies to want to take climate action because they know their customers want it, right? Yeah. I'm really optimistic about that. And I think you know people should continue to uh, make those purchasing decisions and support the companies that are doing the work. That shows up in the sales data and, and all the other companies are watching. And the other thing that is really important is that consumers speak up. Like even if it's just calling the customer service line of your favorite brands and asking what they're doing about climate change or pinging them on Twitter or something like these are the ways that you know that actually does get rolled up into kind of like the PR team or a leadership team eventually if enough people do it. And so that's why we with Torched Earth, as we're rolling out this beer um, at drinksustainably.com, we also have a platform for people to go figure out like of the largest Fortune 500 companies who has a climate plan, a substantive one that's following those IPCC guidelines. And if you can write them and say, thanks for doing that, this really matters to me. You can also write the ones that aren't doing it and say, hey, can you come up with a plan? I really love your brand and I'd love to see some action on your part to help us solve climate change. So, you know, sharing our, our voices, it really does make a difference. And I can tell everybody listening, you know, <laughs> general customers are, it seems like it's, it's, you know, we don't see the direct results of that every day, but I can promise you, I work with hundreds of people that have jobs like mine today that, you know, and 10 years ago, I worked with a dozen people that had jobs like mine. So companies are really prioritizing this and getting on board. And then lastly, I would say, do the same thing for your local elected officials and your you know, senators and house reps and your city councils. Um, you know, they have a lot of influence there in that space too. And we've had a lot of success driving sustainability um, through policy advocacy. The purpose of this podcast and something that I kind of started with is trying to learn from people like yourself and try and better understand what is our impact? What can we do about it? How can we scale positive outcomes and solutions? Do you think these are the right questions to kind of start with for individuals that are trying to get going? And what questions you've already touched on a bit, but what big rocks are you focusing on moving forward? Yeah. You know, customers saying they care yeah. and then making those purchasing decisions in a way that reflects their values, even if it means like, you know, buying a little bit less of something, right? Or eating less meat or whatever it is, you know, that really sends the message to the companies. But really the majority of emissions in the world are coming from a hundred companies, a handful of big decision makers across the world that control policy and and incentive and, you know, federal incentives um, that really can make a difference here. The best that we can do as the public is like push on these people that are holding the big levers, right? And say, this is what we want. But it's really going to take that system-wide shift um, in order to, to make changes you know, that are going to be fast enough um, and effective enough. And so that's what we do. We get to look at what are the big systems changes that are needed and how can we push on those from our perspective as a medium-sized company. First, it comes by, you know, we have to measure our, our greenhouse gas emissions like we talked about and then understand like how can we shift this. I mentioned that containers, uh, beer containers are our largest source of emissions. And so what we do is we advise on companies that are working to reinstate refillable bottle programs. Some of those companies have gotten really big investments now that are piloting it, piloting it on a bigger scale. So our hope is that we can push for the return of the refillable programs, but also push for you know, more bottle bills and, and better recycling. And so in a state that has that 10 cent deposit that you get when you return your container, that those states get about 80 to 95% of their glass back and their cans back to be recycled. Um, here wow. in Colorado, we don't have one of those. We get about 12%. So it gets to be like, you know, it's a strong incentive that works. 
Right. It's a real thing and it works. It works all across the world. So we push for that type of systems change, right? You know, one one piece of legislation to introduce that in a state ends up having enormous shifts on greenhouse gas reduction. We push for our local utility to go 100% renewable and they've made that commitment. We lobbied them and told them the business case for this. And then um, they ended up approving 100% renewable electricity go off wow. 30, which is going to be a cheaper and more efficient way for all of us to get renewables in our community. And then farming is a really big one. So barley farming, I said, was like one of our largest sources of emissions. So we're helping farmers to transition to regenerative agriculture. Like we talked about, that's another systems change that we're really passionate about. And then if you, you know, food waste, there was a study that came out earlier this year that showed that the greenhouse gas emissions from the food that we waste in the United States is um, collectively larger than all of the greenhouse gas emissions of the aviation industry in the United States. Wow. So looking at how we, you know, come in every restaurant and grocery store, how we start working to reduce food waste is really critical. Yeah. Um, And so anyway, there's a million things like this. Project Drawdown is like just an awesome resource. If you want to go, you know, to Project Drawdown, their website, they actually list in rank order, like some of the big systems we could shift, like regenerative agriculture or food waste or refrigerant transitions, you know, to in order to get the most bang for our buck and cutting emissions. Yeah. And I just saw they released a new YouTube series, six part series, and it's like a very thorough but digestible overview of where things stand and what solutions we have today that we can implement. We just need to fund them. Beautiful. All right. You ready for a few of the quick hitters? And I apologize. I'm still working on my questions. So oh yeah, you're you're doing awesome. You're like easy. Um, And if you want to go a little longer, it doesn't need to be a short answer. So all right. What is your go-to spot to get into nature? Local park, hike, mountain? Mm. (laughs) Don't... That's a tough one for you. I know. No, it's, I mean, well, I just, my, my go-to spot was up the Canyon here. It's called the Pooter Canyon, which is a funny name, um, right up from where we live here in Fort Collins. But my very favorite spot to kind of click into nature actually burned in the forest fire. Brutal. brutal. But anyway, there's lots of spaces around it and finding new favorite spots anywhere in the mountains in Colorado is a great spot. But um, even though I live very far away from the ocean, there's something about like, you know, getting your body in the waves and like feeling pretty in sync with it all. No, hundred percent. I've had a lot of time at the beach and ocean, so I'm a little nostalgic yeah. for uh, mountain <laughs> <No>. time. <laughs> is there a daily routine or action that has had an outsized impact on your life? Hmm. Like just broadly? Yeah, like something that, like just a little thing that you picked up along the way. It's like either brings you, I don't know, sets your day in the right direction or just brings you some outsized joy or impact. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things is puppy snuggles. Gosh, (laughs) Um, hard to go wrong with that. When things, I had a friend, um, Andy Fife, actually from B Corp. Yeah, I'm going to talk with him. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, there was one time when, I don't know, we were in like, the stressful situation at a conference or something, things were really busy and hectic. And he's like, you know what I think about when it feels like this? I think about puppies and babies. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to bring that man. up in our conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, just that like their dogs and, and babies are so great at just yeah. being like, puts things into perspective. The, yeah, it does. Yeah. It really uh, gets into your body. <laughs> Is there a book you'd recommend to someone just starting to get curious about impact? 
any of the Paul Hawken books in yeah. the past are really excellent. There's another one I actually have on my bookshelf here, All We Can Save. Um, okay. Talking about you know the climate crisis, but also how we can um, adjust climate justice throughout that. And so that's by um, Ayanna Johnson and Catherine Wilkinson. So that's one I'm getting into more and more these days. Very nice. Where do you get your information? Are there any magazines, websites, authors you read regularly? podcasts or newsletters you subscribe to <laughs> a million of them I, sh- I actually meant to like get you like a curated list before before the podcast everywhere has great information coming out today yeah. like you know what i really like is some of the stuff coming out of the economist and planet money um because there's a ton of technical solutions out there and what really needs to happen are for the big money decision makers and the people that hold the power to make that shift yeah. And um, the big companies, the big, you know, the most powerful, you know, lobbyists or people that are giving money to politicians, like that's where we need to see some of that system shift. And so I'm really interested in some of those podcasts um, from The Economist and and their articles too, and from Planet Money that are putting it into economic perspective. And they actually show like, if we made this change, that we would save a lot of money if you kind of zoom out a decade or something, right? And it's ultimately the best thing for investors. It's ultimately the best thing for companies and um, and policymakers to to make these decisions. So I'm nerding in the, the no, I like economic it. I like impact it. space because that's where you're going to get that those proof points that help to change people's decisions on how they invest money. Yeah, and I just read a book uh, by Sir Ronald Cohen, Impact, basically making the argument that for the longest time, you know, risk return and share shareholder primacy has been the law of land in the markets, but Impact is catching on, and there are proven proven cases like your, like yourself and hundreds of other B corps, mm-hmm. and the idea of integrating Impact in a clear financial model with some regulations around it where investors can make decisions to really look at the entire social environmental impact, not just the financial performance of companies is a trend that's starting to catch on. And once, like you said, once more of the larger institutions implement it, that's where we're going to hit the tipping point. Hopefully we're pretty close to that. I know. I think it's getting, I mean, like I said, there's more and more people getting into this. I've seen the momentum really building over the last decade. I have my undergraduate degrees in finance and economics. And so I was always really passionate about that. And I feel like what we got to do at New Belgium was like, like you said, prove that that was possible along with our friends at like Patagonia and Cliff Bar and others, right? We got to prove that this is actually like good for business and that hopefully inspired a lot of other companies and that still needs to go quite a long ways, but is really building in a way that excites me what are you most curious about right now if you had a a month's time to research and go down any rabbit hole you want what would it be um yeah getting into the nerdy money space right now my master's degree is in positive psychology because i wanted to blend yeah i was like i knew the money side worked you could see the technology coming out it works too and then i'm like man you know what the biggest thing is that people just having a tough time changing their minds or seeing the world in a different way so i wanted to understand the psychology of change and motivation you know cultural and political shifts that could circle around our shared prosperity and resilience. And so I'm really interested, you know, using economic models at, you know, for specific leaders and having their companies at a large scale prove, you know, that these economic models work and and show returns. And that's a little bit of like one, bringing that economic analysis to it, but also bringing that kind of like relationship, like, hey, you're a really big decision maker, like what matters to you? Like, how do we 
like, and that takes, that's nothing, you can't replace just like sitting down with that big decision maker and understanding what matters to them and how they're seeing the world. And then trying to bring some of this economic analysis into what matters in their heart and their mind and how they see the world. I don't know. It's just, I'm really interested in kind of influence. And one of the things I'm really excited about in the latest stimulus um, bill was that $28.6 billion went to independent small restaurants across the country. And um, that's a part of the Restaurant Relief Act. And, you know, what happened is early in the pandemic, the small companies weren't getting the benefit. And then they were really, they came together and said, like, we need to lobby harder for ourselves. And they proposed a plan, a fund, where like anyone who had a bar or restaurant that struggled throughout COVID because of the shutdowns, they could report their 2019 and their 2020 revenue and they would get a check for the difference. And so, I mean, wow. like, people were mortgaging their homes, their families' homes, their parents' homes, just to keep their business alive through all these shutdowns. Now they can get reimbursed for that. So they're not living on mountains of debt as they try to keep their businesses open for all of us to eat and gather. And so one of the things um, that helped make that a reality that really brought this home was that one Republican senator in Mississippi was visiting a restaurant and the rest that he loves, it's his favorite restaurant. And that restaurant owner told him that why that mattered to his business. And then that guy ended up co-sponsoring it in the Senate. And so, you know, it's just like, if you're talking to somebody, you never know who that person is and what they have. Those kinds of things, like bringing it home to how this really matters to their daily lives, couple that with the economic proof that it really does work out for better payback in the long run, which it often does. Anyway, I'm getting like, that's what I'm excited about. That's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. You already touched on it a bit, but one question I've been asking everyone I've been speaking to who's smarter than me and been in this for a while is what is a strong first step or action someone can take to have a positive social or environmental impact in their day-to-day life or in their community? Yeah, great question. On the environmental side, I would just say like, look at how much you're buying and how much you're throwing away and just try to set a goal, like cut your trash in half, you know, over the next year or go to Project Drawdown and look at, you know, how much carbon we can save by reducing meat consumption a couple days a week or something. Those types of behavioral changes can make a really big impact. And then on the social side of things, man, it is just time to understand that the world is not as we all thought it was. And there's a lot of ways that um, our economy has not worked for um, people of color. And we need to really take a look at like, as we rebuild this economy, how we understand the power shifts and what that's you know, the privilege and the marginalization that that's caused in our country. So I think, anyway, the diversity, equity, inclusion is a huge deal right now. And what I've really enjoyed through my job is just listening and learning and being really open to understanding that the way I saw the world was not the way that it always was for everyone else. Yeah, on the social side of things, just I really encourage learning as we rebuild our economy. What brings you hope? What are you optimistic about? And I know we touched on that a little bit, so... Yeah, I'm optimistic, you know, in addition to like what I said earlier, I'm optimistic about how many corporations and investors are and banks are shifting their practices to invest in a more sustainable and just future. Um, The momentum on that is like having been in the industry over 15 years, like it's just phenomenal to see what's happening in recent years. Still a long way to go, but just that momentum and it is really exciting. But I would say just more broadly, like, you know, especially as we've been locked up, cooped up last year, I really more than ever appreciate just sitting down with people and realizing like, no matter how it looks in this divided nation, when I sit down with people over a beer, 
usually we have a lot in common and I need to remember that sometimes when you're just reading news articles, it feels like we're really divided, but I'm getting a lot of hope from these, like sitting back down with people again and like being face to face and having a beer and like realizing the shared humanity amongst us all. And it's going to take, you know, sense of togetherness to get through some of the challenges that we're facing as a nation and as a planet. One of my favorite things from my graduate work was getting into E.O. Wilson's reimagining of what the survival of the fittest meant. And um, he really proved scientifically that we descended from people, not that we're just more dominant, right? Like there's there's this idea that if you're dominant, you're strongest, you can like muscle people the most, that you get the most like resources and those people reproduced the most. Really, when you go back, what science is, is understanding now is that we also descended from the people that could come together and transcend individual interests during tough times. Those communities survived when the more fragmented self-interested communities um, did not come, you know, come together. And so the power of our collective action and the power of togetherness and unity in the face of like shared risks and threats is really, really important. And so I'm gathering a lot of hope from just like being face-to-face and remembering that we're all in this together and um, we're going to have to be in order to get through some of these things. Cheers to that. Well, hopefully we can meet up sometime soon post COVID for some beers and talk shop again. Thank you for coming on again, Katie Wallace. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everything you're doing, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.